Thank you, Tim. Thank you, praise team. What a wonderful time of worship we have had here today. And what a delight it is to get to study God's Word. If you would, uh, grab your copy of God's Word. You can turn with me to the book of Haggai uh, yet again for the last time, probably for a little while. And uh, if you are looking for the book of Haggai and you're here this morning, you can go to the book of Ma- uh, Matthew. You can back up one into Malachi. You can back up another into Zechariah. You can back up one more, and there you'll find yourself in Haggai. And as we've been talking about, you can see uh, not only living for God's glory, but as we conclude our series here of being equipped and engaged for the glory of Christ, uh, that we are looking forward with hope uh, as we conclude here with uh, God's Word in Haggai, and really as we think about our efforts to be equipped and engaged for the glory of Christ uh, throughout this year and in all the days that God has laid out in front of us. And I wonder as we you know, get here in our Bible and, and land here, that where you find yourself in this morning, uh, are we looking forward with hope? Here we are, it's February, January seemed long and then it seemed short. It came and it went, and that was quick. Here we are, we're already second month into the year. Are we looking forward with hope? 2024, are we excited about what God uh, is going to do in our midst? Are we looking forward with a sense in which we are having a sense of expectation upon Him, but also acknowledging the fact that this is about Him and not about us? Let us be reminded yet again, of all the many reasons why we ought to look forward with hope and really see how God challenges us to do so in an interesting way here in the book of Haggai. So grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Haggai chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 10 and we're going to read all the way through the end of the book uh, in verse 23. So grab your copy of God's Word, read with me if you will, Haggai chapter 2 starting in verse 10. And here's what we read. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius... The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the fourth month of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you 
O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to see all of what you have to say to us this morning. That we would look forward with hope fixed on Jesus. Father, that we would not live any longer with false sense of assurances, that we would have no false hope in our own lives. Father, that we would be alive and well in the hope that's found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And Father, we pray that you would use this passage of Scripture at work through your Spirit to bring us all to conviction that we may delight together in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for the forgiveness of our sins and for everlasting life. Father, help us to face life now, looking forward with hope in Christ. We ask it all in Jesus' mighty name and for his great glory. Amen. So as we begin, and really as we jump right in here to this last section of Haggai, it's always helpful, you know, remembering where we've been and thinking about no more delays and, you know, that it's time to glorify the Lord, of considering your ways and, you know, getting invested in being obedient and understanding of who God is and how He has revealed Himself, of walking in perseverance and walking in trust and looking forward. But it's interesting, before we get into looking forward with hope, God takes us on this road here in Haggai to make sure that before we do that, we have to look inward. We need a heart check, as you might say. And so this is exactly what happens here in Haggai, and starting in verse 10, when we're simply told on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, which is a very fancy way of saying December 18th of 520 B.C., the word of the Lord comes by Haggai yet again. And so here's the prophet declaring and saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the, the sovereign Lord over all things and the angelic armies of the heavens, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. He has some questions here. Now they've been working on the temple for quite some time at this point, about three and a half months. They've been going at it, doing the things, being invested and being involved in the work. And it's as though in the middle of all of the busyness and all of the work that's being done, they were missing the point. Is it possible to be doing the right thing with the wrong motives? Is it possible to be doing good things with impure hearts? See, God is equipping His people by His Word to engage well for His glory, but God is not simply after mere busyness. God is not just laying out in front of us a long list of to-dos that we are are, are to walk in. That is, we think of engaged Sundays and the opportunities that are laid out in front of us of sharing the gospel, of engaging our community with the gospel of Christ. God is not calling us to mere religious action that we need to connect our understanding with our action as we aim to exalt Jesus in all things. And so we have these very pertinent questions. Ask the priests. One of the priests who would be asked, in fact, would be Ezra. And you can go read about that in the book of Ezra. Ask the priests what? 
We ask some questions about the law. Look, listen to the first one. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And of course, for us, as we read holy meat, we immediately think, is he talking about fried chicken? He is not. Is he making reference to some uh, nice fast food restaurant that serves fried chicken that's across the street from here that's closed on Sunday? He is not making reference to that. It's not barbecue he's making reference to here. It's meat that was used in the sacrifices of the Lord in the temple. Meat that was used as a way of being reminded of what it cost for the forgiveness of our own sin. And so this holy meat, as it would be taken, and the priests would take it, and they would take a portion of it, and they would feed their families with the meat that was used there. And if you take this in the fold of your garment and start touching other things, does it become holy? Does it make it holy just by walking around and bopping it around? And the answer, of course, is no. I mean, it's obvious from observation. You could go to Leviticus chapter 6, verse 27 and find it very clearly articulated there in the text that holiness is not conveyed in this way. But there's another question that isn't there. Then Haggai said, verse 13, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. The Old Testament ritual law. You were not to have contact with, you know, if you had to have contact with the dead, maybe you have a family member who passed away or something like that, that if you went into the temple or you touched various things, that they would then become unclean. The priests were, yes, that's exactly what the text teaches us in Numbers chapter 19, verse 22. So the issue here, we could think about it even in terms of Laundry, right? That if you have the laundry in your house, if you have clean laundry and you fold it up nicely and you don't walk over to the dirty clothes hamper and tap the dirty clothes with it and be like, now they're clean. I hope you don't. (laughs) However, if somebody opened up your drawer in your dresser and took the dirty clothes and dumped them into there with all the clean clothes, what would happen? Like, they're all dirty, and now I have to go kill someone. Right? We get this. We under, this makes sense to us. And what's interesting here is the priests knew the answers. They knew the Scripture. But they needed the application of it. That living to glorify Christ is not merely a fill-in-the-blank exam. That we are to know the truth and apply the truth in lives of truth. That we get our hearts right in order to aim rightly to glorify Him. And so before we look forward, we look inward. And that's really where God is taking us here. Because the very next thing that He says in verse 14, He says, Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people. And with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. They've been busy with a good thing. They've been doing a lot of good things. And it's not bad to be involved in rebuilding the temple. God told them to do that very thing. But God does not want us doing good things with filthy hearts. 
God is not going to bless our efforts to engage our community if we have a litany of sin reigning in our own hearts. God is calling us to better things. God in his goodness does not allow that. Busyness does not mean godliness. And that if we want to look forward with hope, we need to hear this challenge of God for all of us because he already sees our hearts. He already knows what's going on in there. He already sees the struggles in which you are walking. And God looks at his people who are doing a good thing here and yet their hearts are far from him. And he says what they offer there is unclean. Don't engage in the work with filthy hearts. If you're filthy within, it's eventually going to come out. Just as we would recoil in disgust if our server today or this afternoon brings the food to our table and lays it in front of us and then does that and says, have a nice day, enjoy your meal. He'd be like, not today, thank you. If you went to the dentist and they were sitting there and you have your mouth open and they're working on you and they're leaning in there and they're like, oh yeah, by the way, this morning I tested positive for the flu. You'd be like, you need to get away from me. There's a sense in which we understand that. We don't want to have that kind of defilement in our own lives and we see that and we recoil against it. But see, we don't want to be ourselves involved in doing good things without letting and really asking God to deal with the issues in our own hearts and lives. That as we think of engaging our community for the glory of Christ and looking forward with great anticipation and wonderful hope at all the many things that God is going to do, we must ask ourselves, is there unrepentant sin in our own lives? Issues of pride? Issues of just unwillingness to forgive somebody? How are we going to go offer somebody eternal life through the forgiveness of sins if we're maintaining this sense of unforgiveness in our own lives? Is there some sense of lust that's bogging you down? Some sense of just entrenchment in your own sin that garners so much attention and so much of your affection and so much of your adoration. God wants us to engage in the work with hearts that are pure. And he's too good to let us go down this road otherwise. This is not about just holy rituals and doing religious things. He says, what you offer there is unclean. That we should not expect his blessing on our unrepentance. And so we have to ask ourselves the question first. Before we're going to look forward with hope at all of what God is going to do, we have to ask God, deal with this first. Before I ask you to go deal with that out there, deal with this in here first. Root out the sin in my own life, that as we are equipped by His Word, then we are able to look forward with hope. He says in verse 15, now then consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? He's basically telling them, consider your ways. Remember what it was like when we were doing things without the Lord's blessing. 
Remember those things where you can just write your name on it and you did it and it was terrible and it was a disaster. He's like, don't you remember these things? God is after our hearts, hearts to glorify him. He says, look, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? Remember back and see your need for him. Aim to be needy for God to work in us what we cannot work in ourselves. That all the ways we engage in ministry this afternoon, that it must not be by our own will and wits, but by his spirit leading and guiding us. So we leverage our lives for God's glory. And it's like he gives them just a whole long list of times in which trusting in our own efforts turned into a big old mess. He says, when one came to a heap of of 20 measures, there were but 10. That's disappointing, isn't it? You pull out your wallet, you thought you had 20 in there, and you go to pay, and you're like, oh, all I've got is 10. We need him. He says, you went to a vat, a wine vat, to draw out 50 measures, and there were but 20. So sure it was there, and then all of that effort and all of what you thought you had all put together and organized turns out into disappointment. Why is this happening? He says in verse 17, I struck you with all the products of your toil, with blight, with mildew, and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. And at first we read that, we think, He did that? Amen. He did. Amen. He says, I struck you and all the products of your toil? Yes. Amen. So that we would see that we need Him more than we need ourselves. We need him to do what we cannot. We need him to accomplish what in all of our efforts and all of the ways in which we can just do and busy ourselves with all manner of things, it just winds winds up in a place of disappointment. We need to stop feeling like we're drawn from a dry well. We need his strength at work within us. We need him to provide the hope that we need for the circumstances that we're in. We need him to provide the comfort at work in us that we can then share with others and comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we've been comforted by God. We need him to work in us the perseverance that we do not naturally have, that God in his kindness is getting our attention and saying, turn to me. And yet we can so often be so hard-hearted, can't we? He says, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. We can be so proud. We all like to play Mr. Fix-It. And unfortunately, it happens in spiritual things, often how it happens in physical things. Because we look at something, we're like, oh, I can take that apart and fix it. And what do you do? You, you know, you disassemble the whole thing, pull all the screws out, you're pulling it on, you're pulling things off of a circuit board and everything else, thinking you're going to get it all back together. And then you're like, okay, I think it should work now. And you start to put all the pieces back in there. And 
what happens? You have a bigger mess on your hands after than when you started. That's the place where a lot of us are in right now spiritually. Because you've just been trying to do it all on your own. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to, do, I'm going to pull this piece off. I'm going to put this piece over here. I'm going to crisscross this, that, and the other. No, we need him. We need him. We need to be humbled in our hearts before him so that we will look forward with hope. Because if all we've got is the hope of our own efforts and the hope of our own will and the hope of our own way and the hope of our own design, we got nothing. But when our hope is fixed on God and what he alone can do, oh, what hope we have. So it's like he's telling them, remember all of the misery of living like of those times when you can remember when God was just a footnote in your life. Remember all the fruitlessness of a life without Christ as an invitation to turn from your sin and trust in him. To turn away from the carnage of life and look to him who alone can solve and fix and help and save and rescue and redeem what looks like an impossible situation. Because our God does impossible things. God is going to have our hearts before he blesses our efforts. Have we learned this lesson yet? Do we need to hear this correction of God who is so fatherly in his instruction? Telling us, learn your lesson so that you'll remember, so that you'll look to me and rely upon me and stop relying upon yourselves. So he says in verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from de- again, December 18th, 520 B.C., from this moment onward, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded Nothing. He says, consider this and look around. He tells them to look around in 520 B.C. And he's telling them to look around in 2024. Look around. Consider. Think about this a little bit. We need a whole lot more than a place. We need a whole lot more than just some religious activity going on. Because if we look at all of what is going on around us, is there seed yet in the barn? No. See, we need the living Lord to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. The living Lord who really saves, who really redeems, who really reconciles, who is our mighty God whose love endures forever. We don't need emblems of blessing. We need His blessing. Look around into the fields. He says, is the seed yet in the barn? No. The vine? Nope. Fig tree? Nope. Pomegranate? Nope. Olive tree? They've all yielded nothing. He's like, look out into the fields. What, what are you looking forward to? And well, if it's all on us, I mean, what do we have? Nothing. He says, as you look out to these things, what are you expecting? Are you looking forward with hope? Expect another bad year, limited results, 
blight? What about the fields of ministry? We look out into 2024, as you look out into your own life, and you look out into your family, your friends, loved ones, community, country, world. Are we looking forward with hope? Depends on where our hope relies, isn't it? We are to remember Him so that as we see the seeds scattered, we look forward with hope. As we see the things that He has planted and put together, we look forward with hope. That we enjoy the end of ourselves and the end of our self-reliance so that we would look forward to hope, to hear Him say, from this day on, I will bless you. Because they're looking at it like all I see here is a mediocre harvest and a second-rate temple. And maybe we're sitting here today and it's like all I see is just a sort of remnants of yesteryear. Is that all we see? Are we looking forward with hope at what God is going to do? And that we would remember in this moment this is an invitation to repent, to turn away from our sin and to say, Lord, root this out of me that I may fully rely upon you and watch you do in and through me more than I could ever have thought possible. And that we would look at one another and be reminded at how God brings fruit to bear. We would not overlook the fact that we can gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ every Sunday morning and we can look down the, the aisle and look across the pew and look at one another and say, look at what God has done. That part of the reason we can look forward with hope is because we can look at one another and say, look at what God has done in your life and in my life. Look at what he's doing. Look at how he's at work. Look at how he's convicting and leading and guiding. Look at how he brought such comfort and kindness and mercy and grace on a regular, repeated basis. Look at how faithful he is. Let's look forward with hope that he would remove all of the sin barriers in our lives. Forgive us that he would bless us. Look forward with hope that God will bless our aim to glorify him. But make sure that as we look forward with hope, we do so with eyes and hearts fixed on Jesus. Because yes, verse 20 says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Remember what day that was? December 18th, 520 B.C. Yes, same time, same one, right? It's like, man, this is a double feature. It just keeps on coming. He says, speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. He's saying, tell the, the governor. We're like, hey, politics here? This man who is the grandson of the king who was so wicked that the people were ushered into exile? And here's Zerubbabel, and now he's put in place by the Persians. It's like, listen to this. Shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms? It's like, this sounds like a political dream, doesn't it? This sounds like the best possible circumstance for a political leader. Shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow kingdoms. God is exercising his might over all. And notice it says kingdoms, not merely kingdom. So over, you know, his might over the Persian and the Persian Empire, who would then be, you know, dominated by the Greeks, and the Greeks would then be dominated by the Romans. But in an ultimate sense, God is 
mighty over all these. He says, I'm going to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, overthrow the chariots and the riders, the horses and the riders go down, everyone by the sword of his own brother. I'm going to display my might in a way that looks as though no one has anything by comparison. You know, I can remember the days at Georgia, you go to the Ramsey, you go to work out, you go in there and you're like, hey, you know, I'm doing pretty good and lifting some weights. And then some of the football players walk by or walk in and you're like, I'm out, right? You felt pretty good, but by comparison, you're looking around and be like, it's not even close. Because Nick Chubb shows up and is like, this is over. It's astounding, isn't it? God in his might, we often forget just how mighty he is. There is no comparison whatsoever. He is about to destroy their strength, display his absolute power over all, mightier than any war machine, in that the horses and riders are going to go down everyone by the sword of his own brother. That just like it always does, with anything without the Lord God himself, it will collapse under the weight of human sinfulness. Amen. Nations crushing nations, warring against one another. And you read this and you think, looking forward with hope? Yes. Amen. Because verse 23 says this, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel declares the Lord and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And maybe you read this and you're like, what? How does this look to Jesus? Well, quite specifically, actually. Because when we read this, it says, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you. So in some way, this is connected directly to Zerubbabel. And he's even referred to as Zerubbabel, my servant. Now there's a distinction here as he's making this name, he's using this, that it's not going to be Zerubbabel, the man in that day. He says, on that day, someone of your line, my servant. That is a messianic title. It's the same word that's used in Isaiah chapter 40 to describe the one who's going to bring comfort to God's people. It's the same word that's used in Isaiah chapter 42 to describe the one who meets us in our brokenness and who will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering flax. It's the same word that's used of the one who is the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53, who by his stripes we are healed because he endured the outpouring of the punishment that we deserve in our place. This servant... Through him, the Messiah is going to come? The kingdom that will never end? He says, I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. Signet ring, which would be like a ring that's basically the ancient equivalent to a modern signature. An emblem of authority on God's behalf. And you think, wait, an emblem of God's authority? Who could carry that kind of authority? Only someone who's fully God and fully man. Whose signature is not only an exercise of identity, but also authority. And we're reading Zerubbabel, a word that we get some sense of enjoyment out of saying out loud, but other than that, we don't really know what else to say. Yes. The one, if you read back in Jeremiah 22, whose grandfather was cursed 
sent off into exile. And yet this Davidic promise is sort of lingering out in the wind. It's as though we're looking at God's faithfulness on display across the generations and we're reading this. We're like, how, does, how is it possible that God could connect all of this together? He says, I have chosen you. And we hear these words and we take comfort in these words. And you can imagine the comfort that was found in 520 BC. And then we wait. And years pass. And then decades pass. And then 100 years, 200, 300, 400, 500. And then all of a sudden, as though God had it all planned out, a virgin conceives by the Holy Spirit. The one who is referred to as great and the Son of the Most High. Could it be that Messiah, the only Messiah, fits the same promise, the same mold? Well, we should at least check the records. And when we do, in Matthew chapter 1 and reading the genealogy of Jesus, you read this in Matthew chapter 1 verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And you read on down to verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Here we have in Haggai, as we think of looking forward with hope, we are given a specific point of hope to look to. And his name is Jesus. We're not looking to ourselves. We're not looking to all the things that we could do. We're not looking to our own religious busyness. We're not looking to all the things that we can you know, do on our own. We're looking to Christ, to Jesus Christ specifically because as we look and we see promises made, promises kept, all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus that he saves to the uttermost, that the eternal Son of God took on flesh, lived in perfect righteousness, died on the cross for our sin, rose from the dead, and offers forgiveness and everlasting life to all who repent and believe that He redeems and He loves and He rescues and He restores. He is the one whom we all need, His hope, His life, His forgiveness, and He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He who equips us to engage because He ascended into heaven in victory after His resurrection and sent His Holy Spirit, and that His signature is still valid because signed on every, every life that is transformed, it's not my name, it's not your name, it's the name of the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing promise we have here, calling, out of, calling us out of the darkness into His marvelous light. His hope, His power. Look forward with hope in Jesus. So when we, when we get to this afternoon at 4 o'clock, and you have that person on your mind that you've been thinking about all week long, And you think, oh, I just can't. That's a good place to be, in fact. Because you're right. But when those words come out of your mouth and into your head, say, I can't, but he can. 
He can soften hearts. He convicts of sin. He opens the eyes of the blind. He calls out of darkness. He gives life so that as we engage our family and engage our friends and our loved ones and our society, if we look anywhere other than Christ, it will be bleak. But when we look to Jesus, oh, we look forward with hope. Looking forward with hope starts now. So let us begin with repentance. For the believer, let it begin by you simply asking God to remove anything in your life that is displeasing to him. Any sin that hinders your effectiveness, any sin that has captured your attention and your affection, that has turned you away from beholding Christ the way you ought. And be reminded that God is faithful and just. And that as we confess our sins, he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And maybe you're here and you are an unbeliever. The response is the same. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your sin of idolatry. Turn away from the sin of exalting yourself. Turn away from the the sin nature that just trends you in the darkness, that continues to, to just plow the way in the darkness. Turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who took on flesh who lived in perfect righteousness, who died your death upon the cross, enduring the full outpouring of the wrath of God against your sin, who died and rose again, that there's forgiveness and life in him. Let's start looking forward with hope as we all respond to him with repentance now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, do in us what we can't do in ourselves. May the light of your holiness expose our own sin. Before we give thought to anyone else, Father, check our own hearts first. Before we give another thought to reaching somebody in our own lives that you have put there, Father, deal with the sin in our own hearts first. Cleanse us by your grace that we would look forward with hope of your blessing. And Father, we pray for anyone in here who is not yet a believer. We pray that the light of your holiness would expose their sin and let them know that you see, you know already, but how good you are to provide yet another opportunity of forgiveness and life in Jesus. Father, may each one of us in our own hearts now turn that we may look forward with hope in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.